Welcome to Crossroads of Culture and Christianity. I am your host, Jacob Jellison, joined as always by my co-host, Aaron Hofe. Today, we're going to continue our discussion that we started a couple episodes ago. We're going to continue talking about abortion. You'll remember that we did kind of an introductory episode on the topic of abortion. And then last week, we talked about some biblical defenses against abortion. This week, we want to spend a little bit of time and we want to explore the philosophical side of the argument. And we want to do it as we answer a defense for abortion from an article by a lady named Judith Jarvis Thompson. Uh, She was an American philosopher and she wrote this article back in 1971. It's from a volume called Philosophy and Public Affairs. And so basically, it's a, a large article that was written to defend the concept of abortion. There's many different illustrations that she uses and parallels uh, between different things that she uses to try to defend her position. And what's interesting about this article is that she really doesn't argue in defense of abortion from the angle that many of the proponents of abortion do. Many of them will argue that abortion is acceptable because it's not truly a human inside the womb. Rather, what she does is she tries to defend the concept of abortion by stating that regardless of whether it's actually a human or not, the fact of the matter is, is that either one of those is perfectly acceptable. So whether it's a human or not doesn't really change the validity of abortion. And so we kind of want to dive in and dissect some of her thoughts and ideas and try to give a reasonable answer to them. The article, even though you and I, Brother Jellison, disagree strongly with it, it's an interesting read. It's just so strange, you know, to read something that follows this kind of line of thinking, this way of thinking. Right. The first thing before we give, you know, jump into her illustration, because she's going to, like you already brought out, she's going to assume that let's say it is a human person and she's going to conclude we still have the right to kill it or, or to have an abortion. She might not like the terminology. We have the right to kill it. She should probably still say say that we have the right to have an abortion, which we'll jump into that later. But nonetheless, she starts out her second paragraph. She says that it's very difficult to draw a line and say, this is where the fetus is a human becomes a human person. So she says it's real hard to look in the stage of development as from conception to birth, you know, and through life. It's very difficult to find a place where you just draw a line and say, well, that's where it becomes a human person. Before that moment, yeah. it wasn't. Now it is, you know. But she does seem to think that human personhood begins very early on, even while the child is still in the womb. Right. And, and so she says that, and here's a quote right out of her second paragraph in this article. She says, I am inclined to think that we shall probably have to agree that the fetus has already become a human person well before birth. Then she gives, after claiming that, she specifically mentions the 10th week. And she says it's already got face, arms, legs, fingers, toes. You can detect brain activity. And so she's mentioning all this that she says is there from the 10th week. And so she says it's obvious that, you know, well before birth, it's already a human person. So I... Assume from that paragraph that probably by the 10th week, she thinks it's a person, a human person. 
And again, she says in this very same paragraph, you, you can't really draw a line and say, this is where it became a human person. So I don't know where she would actually say this is where it becomes a human person. She doesn't even know that she can do that. Right. But at the very end of the article, uh, and you mentioned this earlier while you and I were discussing it, uh, but the very last paragraph says, at this place, however, it should be remembered that we have only been pretending throughout that the fetus is a human being from the moment of conception. A very early abortion is surely not the killing of a person, and so is not dealt with by anything I have said here. So she thinks a very early abortion, presumably not week 10, because she she does seem to think in the second paragraph that by week 10 it's probably a human person. Uh, So that's probably not the stage she's speaking of when she says very early abortion. She probably is speaking of, I assume, I don't know, week one, two, three. But you still have the challenge of what is it specifically? And and this is this is the question that we would like to uh, receive an answer to. But what is it specifically that happened between week three and week 10? Even if you can't draw a line and say, this is when it happens, it's like, what is it that makes such a difference in the nature of this thing in the womb that's growing and maturing? What is it that during this time, let's lengthen that time. Say we can't draw a line. Let's just put a block of time. What is it about that block of time that turned it into a human person all of a sudden? You know, it seems very difficult. But still, that's all beside the point, because in this article, she takes the line that, okay, so from early on, it's probably already a human person, but it's still okay to kill it, even though, or to to, to have an abortion. And I keep using the terminology to kill it because it's habit for me. I... I think of abortion as the active killing of this innocent life. That's how I think of it. And so it's hard for me to use sometimes this other terminology. But so her her terminology, it's okay to have an abortion, even if it's a human person uh, that's in the womb. And the illustration she gives is just unreal. You read it. You might, I don't know. I guess we should unpack the illustration just maybe before we dive into some of those details that just some of our critique. Maybe we should just kind of give our audience a, a real quick overview of the illustration, uh, because I don't know how many of them have read this article by Judith Jarvis Thompson. Probably right. not too many. Probably not. So you want you want to give the illustration she gives? Sure. So basically, what she builds her entire argument around is this illustration. She says, you know, imagine this. You wake up in the morning, you find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist. Not to make it too humorous, but I have no idea why she randomly chose a violinist. <laughs> that's beside the point. <laughs> I, mean, I, did, I have no idea. Of all the things she could have chosen, it's a violinist. So a famous unconscious violinist. Uh, he's been found to have a fatal kidney disease. And so basically what has happened is the Society of Music Lovers have canvassed medical records. They went through all the medical records and they found that you are the only person that has the right blood type to help this violinist. They have, as a result of that, they've kidnapped you and they have basically attached you to the violinist circulatory system. And so your kidneys are being used to 
pull the blood or pull the poison from his blood. And the director of the hospital looks at you and he says, look, we're sorry. The society of music lovers did this to you. We'd never have permitted it if we had known, but they did it. And the violinist is now plugged into you. And so if you unplug yourself from the violinist, you would kill him, but it's only for nine months. So by then he's going to have recovered from this disease and he can be safely unplugged from you. And so basically the argument that she makes is because you find out this information that you are now morally obligated to continue in this position, even though it's cumbersome to you, it's very inconvenient. You're, you're stuck in this bed with this violinist. You're plugged into him against your will, but because you're the only one that has the ability to save his life. Now, morally, you are obligated to remain where you are and to stay attached to him. And so that's the basic argument that she builds or the basic illustration that she builds this entire argument around. So just like with this famous violinist you supposedly don't have a moral obligation to stay attached to the violinist so with pregnancy the expectant mother has no moral obligation to remain attached to the developing fetus inside the womb and so yeah so there's a number of details about this that just this illustration that I, I just find difficult and and some of them maybe more than others one of the things that for me as as I read through the article and her illustration I mean when when a mother is expecting a child it's it's pregnancy rarely I don't know personally of a single case where pregnancy was literally nine months of being bedfast. You know, right. it's, it's just so the difficulties that are experienced in when a mother's expecting not to minimize the difficulties. I know there are certain inconveniences and difficulties that come with it, but it's it's mothers carry their children. And nine months later, there's the joy of having this child. And, and even as the child develops in the mother's womb, it's there's a bond and attachment that's formed there even before the child's ever born right Uh, and i would add too, just kind of on top of what you're saying i would add there are probably our situations there there are many times that things that are outside of the norm happen so just kind of as a precautionary statement to along with what you're saying and i know this is what you were implying is there may be situations that maybe somebody one of our listeners knows of where you know, a, a mother has been bedridden for almost the duration of her pregnancy. We're not sure. saying that doesn't happen. What we're saying is that that's not the norm. There are things that do happen in medical situations that do occur. And, and so things happen that shouldn't happen normally. But the fact of the matter is, is that the majority of pregnancies are not that way. Right. I mean, even even with that being said, I mean, I'm aware of difficult situations and circumstances that have arisen, but nine months bedfast is still extreme. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm aware of situations where, say, the last few months of pregnancy, the mother is supposed to take it really easy, something like that. But I don't know of any cases where it's literally nine months of being bedfast, you know, I mean, absolutely unable to get up, period. Even in cases where, for the most part, they have to take it very easy and a lot of time laying down, even in those cases, they're not absolutely bedfast. Uh, right. And, and it's usually not the duration of the pregnancy either. It's just 
maybe the last few months or in some right, cases yeah. weeks. So so I still think she's really exaggerated. Definitely. You know, and and to be fair though, I guess I do have to admit that if she's looking for an illustration synonymous with pregnancy, I'm not sure there is an exact illustration synonymous with pregnancy outside of pregnancy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so to be fair, I'm it might be a little unfair of me to completely expect all the details to match up but still it's it certainly is exaggerated in here a little bit yeah one of the uh points too that i find that is problematic with this illustration is for starters and and you already said this basically but it's kind of an absurd hypothetical situation so she's relying on a very crazy outlandish situation and comparing it to pregnancy. But as the the point you already made, there's not many things that you can compare pregnancy to. So she has to do the best she can. And I I will, I realize that, but I think there's a a major difference between aborting a baby and being hooked up to a violinist that you were kidnapped and did not choose to be hooked up to. You think? Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, slight, slightly, there, there might be slight, a slight difference there, <laughs> but, but the point, and I made this point already, I don't remember if it was the last episode of the, the episode before, but I made this point already. When you become expecting with child, with a child, it was a direct result of a choice that you made. So again, there, there's not a comparison here. So in this situation, you're kidnapped and you're hooked up to a violinist against your will. In the situation of having an abortion, the abortion, you're faced with that situation because of a direct result of your own choices. And that's what one of the issues that I have, and I've, I've seen it all throughout this article, but one of the issues that I have with many people that are proponents of abortion is they are not willing to accept personal responsibility for their own actions and they try to do their best to explain it away and that's exactly what this illustration does Uh, it's trying to explain away the responsibility because in the illustration you didn't have a choice you didn't choose that you just you woke up and that's how it was but in the situation of abortion you you did have a choice you made a decision and now you have a, a result of that decision whether you like it or not whether you want it or not it is it is your responsibility at that point and again, I'm not talking about rape and things like that. I realize that there are exceptions to that. I understand. But again, as we talked about last episode, those are very small in percentage. That's true. That's true. And I guess if we continue with her illustration, she's trying to say that even though it's a person, a human person in the womb, we still have the right to have an abortion, uh, just like this violinist is a human person and you still have the right to reach around behind you and unhook unplug unattach yourself from the violinist your body supplies the nutrients he needs and and your your kidneys are cleansing and and your body's doing the work to keep him alive and yet she says you have the right to unattach yourself from the violinist and Honestly, it doesn't really make a difference, maybe to a point. She's arguing he's a human person, yet you have the right to unattach yourself. She doesn't build much on in this illustration on the fact that, well, you didn't have a choice, so therefore. And it's true. Normally, the baby is in you because of a choice you made. 
normally the mother's expecting because of a choice she made. But there may be those cases like you had mentioned where in cases of rape or something where the mother who's expecting didn't make any choices. It, she's a victim in this situation, a, a victim right. of a crime. And, and, and yet you and I on the pro-life side are going to say, well, that's still a human life inside of you. You can't kill it. And on this side, Judith Jarvis Thompson is going to say, no, you have the right to unattach yourself from this child, just like you would if you were back to back with a famous violinist and and you were supplying what he needed to stay alive. And she would probably apply the very same illustration and, and apply it, make application to situations where the mother had a choice in to some degree in whether she was expecting or not. And she probably applied also to cases where someone was a victim of a rape, you know, so she's applying this broadly to a sense. But at the end of the day, there's, there's one major, major problem. And I think this is to me, I think this is the biggest. We've talked about some of the weaknesses maybe of her illustration, the exaggerating of, well, nine months bed fast, that that's a bit of an exaggeration. The idea that, well, here you've been kidnapped. Most cases, that's not exactly what an abortion is. You're you're kidnapped against your will, or, or what a pregnancy is, rather. Most cases. But the biggest weakness is in the fact that she's trying to make the parallel. And this is the key. Her whole illustration drives on this. She's trying to make a parallel between you reaching around behind and unhooking, unattaching yourself from the violinist and him dying of this disease. And the mother who wants to have an abortion goes to a clinic and they abort the child. And the two things and you and I discussed this some, the two things I think are not synonymous at all. It's, in fact, you read a part of it, and I don't remember where you found it in the article. Do you remember where you found the part where she says you don't have the right to slit the throat of yeah. the violinist? Somewhere in this article, she makes that statement. Yeah, um, I have it here if you want me to read it. Yeah, read it. Okay, so basically what she says is, second, while I'm arguing for the permissibility of abortion in some cases... I am not arguing for the right to secure the death of the unborn child. It is easy to confuse these two things in that up to a certain point in the life of the fetus, it is not able to survive outside the mother's body. Hence, removing it from her body guarantees its death. But they are importantly different. I have argued that you are not morally required to spend nine months in bed sustaining the life of that violinist. But to say this is by no means to say that if, when you unplug yourself, there is a miracle and he survives, you then have a right to turn around and slit his throat. You may detach yourself even if this costs him his life. You have no right to be guaranteed his death by some other means. If unplugging yourself does not kill him, um, so there are some people who feel dissatisfied with this feature of my argument. She says a woman may be utterly devastated by the thought of a child, a bit of herself put up for adoption and never seen or heard from again. She may therefore not merely want to detach that child from her, but, but more that it die. So she describes abortion as just unattaching yourself from the child. Yeah. And that's, Basically. that's the problem I have with it. She has in her illustration, she's making the unattaching yourself from the famous violinist synonymous with the mother unattaching herself from her child. But in the illustration, 
the unattaching of yourself from the famous violinist is reaching around and and pulling this plug this this cord this iv that connects you and and you getting up and leaving but in abortion it's not at all that it's not you getting up and walking away and some horrible disease may take the life of this child it's it's you're the active participant it, there's no no disease taking the life of the child you are the active participant who the child would live but you are choosing right. to cause its death and an abortion i mean I, I i make no apologies for this but abortion isn't just some passive choice where one walks away and maybe the child will die on its own maybe it will live abortion some of the ways that they carry out abortion i mean literally it is the ripping apart of the child while it's in the mother's womb it's and yeah. and, and again she says that that line you read where it's you're not allowed to go over there and and make sure he dies you're not allowed to go over there and slit his throat and yet in abortion it's exactly what we do uh right. in in D&E sometimes they have to they they dilate and evacuate the womb there's a vacuum that's used and and in the process oftentimes the child is too big to just pull out of the womb as is and and oftentimes they have to literally dismember the child before they can pull it out of the womb and so it's not when she says you don't have the right to go slit the throat but that's exactly what abortion is right and so right, I it's think, active i think that is the biggest problem with this article it's we can talk all day long about the, maybe the weakness of the illustration and where it goes too far or not far enough. But the whole argument hinges on you have the right to unattach yourself from the violinist. But abortion is not merely unattaching yourself from the child and the child can go on living. That's not what abortion is. It's the violent ending of the life of this unborn child. Absolutely. One of the things that she does as well in this article, and I was just kind of looking over it as you were bringing that point out is she actually, it's kind of fascinating, but she actually goes to the story of the good Samaritan to try to prove her point. And as she's doing that, she is stating that she, she, she's basically stating that what Jesus is teaching in this parable is not necessarily a moral obligation, but it's just basically he's encouraging that there may be times that we are we should go beyond what is morally required of us. So what she's saying is there's a there's a level of morality, but sometimes it's it's going beyond that level of morality. That's what makes us a good Samaritan. So it's not something that's morally required. And what she does is she uses this illustration of a woman named Kitty Genovese, which I'm not familiar with the story. This article was written back in the seventies. So, but anyway, the, the story is that she was murdered while 38 people watched or listened and they didn't do anything at all to help her. They didn't even call, they didn't intervene at all. Uh, they didn't even call the police, according to this story here that she has, and and none of them were charged. So it seems like from the argument here that she's making uh, is that because there was no law stating that by them not interfering, they they broke any kind of law, 
that obviously even the law recognizes that it's not a moral moral obligation for us to intervene. Uh, and she uses this this account of Jesus and or that Jesus gives this parable to sa- state that to save someone's life is not a moral obligation. I I don't know that I agree with that. I don't know that Jesus is stating that it wasn't a moral obligation. I mean, I think that was the point that he was making. It was the moral thing to do. It was the 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 fact of the matter is, is that the good Samaritan, it wasn't just something that he did just to be nice. It was, but that's not the point. I think the point was that Jesus is making, and again, it was a parable. It was a hypothetical story, but I think the point that Jesus is making is as human beings, it ought to be our desire to reach out, especially to those that are most the most vulnerable in society and to protect them. That's the whole point. She's missing the entire point of that parable by stating that what Jesus is teaching is not a moral obligation, but that sometimes we may be willing to go beyond what is actually morally required of us. Yeah, the whole, I looked up while you were talking, I I, I went back to the passage she mentioned specifically in the article, uh, Luke 10, where the story of the Good Samaritan is found. And and the whole idea comes from the law, and, and it's, it's, it's a discussion between the lawyer and Christ, and he's trying to tempt Christ, trap him, you know, he's like, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said, well, what's in the law? How do you read the law? And and so the lawyer tells him, and he says, that's right. Go do that and live. And the lawyer's trying to find sort of a way out, a, a loophole, if you will. And so what the lawyer had determined was, here's what I'm supposed to do from the law. I love God with everything that I am. And I also love my neighbors myself. And and Jesus's response had been, yeah, that's right. Go do that and live. Love God with everything that you are and have and, and, and love your neighbors yourself. And that's it. And on those two, the whole law and the commandments they and the prophets hang on those. And so the lawyer, he's, again, looking for that loophole. And he's, who is my neighbor? That's the quote in Luke 10, 29. And who is my neighbor? And that's where Jesus gives this story of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, Jesus concludes this story of the Good Samaritan with, who was neighbor? And well, the one that showed mercy on him, which was the Good Samaritan. And, and Jesus says, go and do that likewise. Go show mercy. Go, go be like that. And so it's, you're to love those. You, and, and so Jesus isn't giving the, you're right, he's not giving this story of the Good Samaritan as a, yeah, there are times you might go above and beyond, but you're not. You don't have to live this way. You know, be this way. In in at least in Scripture, we have to admit that Jesus gives this as this is how you live. You know, right? Uh, so so for sure, when you're looking in Scripture, it doesn't fit with how she's using it. As far as do we are we actually required to help? You know, it, it we are according to Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mean I think I think she's missing the entire point. She says it's not a moral obligation, but I think that the point that Jesus is making is it is a moral obligation. Right, for sure. So at the end of the day, there's a number of it's an interesting article to say the least. There's a number of interesting points to throw around and consider and possible weaknesses of the illustration. But at the end of the day, the big glaring failure to me and and this is probably where my critique reaches its end. But the big glaring failure to me is the fact that abortion, she gets it wrong, abortion is not simply the mother detaching herself 
from the child. Right. It's the violent ripping apart, the violent ending of the life of this child in, in, in so many cases. And getting to the goal of it all. In, in abortion, the goal is not to get the baby out of the mother's womb alive and just be detached. The goal is to end the life of this baby. Right. And yet in the illustration, the goal was not to kill the violinist. The goal was simply detachment. Honestly, a better illustration as far as the whole detachment and walking away and letting letting live or whatever would happen, letting just nature take its course. A better analogy would probably be, and there she left that famous violinist in the bed under the care of the medical individuals who were watching over both of them. And a closer analogy to doing that might be more along the lines of having the child and giving it up for adoption. Uh, But it's, again, the the whole nature of the thing, the nature of abortion is, is absolutely just misrepresented. In my estimation, yeah. it's it's completely misrepresented. It's it's presented as something very passive. We're just detaching ourselves, but oh, it, it's right. it's so much more than that, right? And that's the point that she makes too. Is she says in that quote that I read just a little bit ago, she says it's basically the discretion of the of the mother. So if you don't want a little piece of you floating around out there because this is how she dismantles this argument for adoption that you just you just mentioned. If you don't want a little piece of yourself out there floating around, then you have the right to detach yourself and allow that piece of you to die. But that's not that's not what's happening. It's not a little piece of you that's dying. It's not a philosophical concept. This is a, a, a living, breathing human being. It's more than just a piece of you. I mean, it is to some degree biologically, but it's more than just a piece of you. This is a separate person. This is somebody else whose life you are taking. And I just don't know that there's any way that you can prove that you have a right to do that. I agree. At the end of the day, we can discuss and throw around all these arguments and critique these articles. But at the end of the day... As believers, our hearts ought to be broken about the sins of our nation. Uh, In this case, about millions of innocent, unborn children who have not merely been detached from their mothers, passively detached, but actively ripped to pieces. I mean... Our hearts ought to break over that. Uh, and, and the lie's been sold to them. And in some cases, mothers have had abortions not knowing all that they were doing. And, and the years that they spend sometimes, cannot speak for all of them, but the years that some of them have spent tormented by what they've done, it ought to break our hearts and drive us to our knees. Thank you so much for listening today. If you'd like to reach us, you can contact us at askthecrossroads at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, we have instructions down below on how you can do that. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.